Hello and welcome to the Movers and Shakers podcast. My name is Anthony Machinsky, the Marketing Communications Manager at Manor College. I'm here with Christina Prokopovich, who has been the curator of the Ukrainian Heritage Studies Center at Manor College for the last 29 years. Christina, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. So, Christina, 29 years, how did you uh, discover Manor? Well, I knew of Manor, uh, even growing up, and uh, a certain point there was a Ukrainian festival here, and my children performed at it, so I knew of Manor. But to actually start working here was a whole different story. I had a friend who worked here, and when the previous curator was retiring, my friend kept asking me to please apply for this job. Now, this was not my background at all. Um, I was a math major. But um, Ukrainian culture was always a part of my life. And um, he kept saying, you have to try, you have to try. I wouldn't even give him a resume because I said nothing on my resume would fit this job description. But eventually I had an interview with Sister Frances and every time I raised an objection, she overcame that objection. We had uh, a few conversations, and I finally broke down and said, well, I'll try it for a year and see what happens. And 29, 29 years later, here you are, right? Yes. <laughs> what, was the, what was the final, you know, I don't, like, like what was the final step for you to go, you know what, this is, this is right? It was a combination. Working in the museum made me feel like I was working at home. I've always been surrounded with Ukrainian folk art. And the idea of preserving Ukrainian culture was something that was ingrained in me from the time I was a child. But also, it was the feeling of community, going through difficult periods. Everybody was here to support you, uh, share your joys. And that was where I felt that I belong here. So what was the, tell me a little bit about the, the Heritage Studies Center and, and what is it, what does it do, uh, what is your role uh, at the center? The Ukrainian Heritage Studies Center was started in 1977. Uh, Manor College had been named a, it was actually Manor Junior College at the time, was named a Bicentennial College. And the sisters wanted to showcase their heritage. Basically, the center consists of a few parts, the archives, the library collection, the folk art collection in the museum, and also an outreach program going out to groups, uh, whether it's schools, community groups, and doing presentations about Ukraine, its culture, and workshops also. And for you now, so your job um, as the curator is to take care of the artifacts, obviously, but uh, what else does the job entail? Planning different activities to be done with the students here. Also uh, going out into the community, whether it's the Ukrainian community or the non-Ukrainian community, and just simply educating a little bit about Ukraine. Um, until very recently, Ukraine was not a country that people knew very much about. And it was a part of my job to not necessarily teach people, but to make them a little more interested in Ukraine. And tell me a little bit about your history with Ukraine. Well, I was born here in the United States in New Jersey. Um, my parents came over right after World War II. They um, came here through the refugee camps, which were known as the 
DP or displaced persons camps that were set in Germany and Austria right after the war. Uh, most people spent between two and five years in those camps waiting for a place that would accept them and usually waiting for a sponsor that would vouch for them. While in those camps, they tried to preserve their culture and at the same time learn the language of the country they were hoping to go to, mostly English. Were your parents hoping to come to America? Yes, yes. What was their, um, when did they finally make it over? I think it was in 49, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know the exact. So it, it took them a couple of years. Oh, yeah, it did yeah. take them a couple of years. My father had a distant uncle that uh, lived in New York who was willing to sponsor them, but it took a, a while, you know, even just getting in touch with him. It's amazing that they were able to find that person living in New York. And where do they come from in Ukraine? Uh, Right before the war, they, both my parents and my mother's parents were all in Lviv, which is in western Ukraine. My father originally came from a town that wasn't too far from Lviv. And do you know any more of their backstory about coming here and, and finding roots? What did they do when they first got here? Oh, um, well, when it comes to my grandparents, my mother's parents, they found a different sponsor. She was in Philadelphia, and she ran a restaurant. She needed somebody to uh, wash dishes. So that's what my grandmother did, and my grandfather was a janitor in a public school. Eventually, he got a job at Lankanau Hospital washing test tubes. Now, back in Ukraine, they had very different jobs, but <laughs> they were very glad that the United States accepted them. Although they still felt they weren't here forever, they thought they were going back because the communist system would never survive. But after a few years, they realized it was going to be for the long haul. Were they ever able to go back? No. Have you been able to go back since? I've never gone. You've never gone to Ukraine? No. Oh, I had no idea. No, I've never been to Ukraine. Um, it seemed like every time the desire was there, the opportunity wasn't. And at this point in time, well, besides the war now, I wouldn't dare go back right now. But with uh, both my grandparents and my parents gone, I do have some idea where they lived, but it's not the same as having gone back with them and seeing it through their eyes. What, what were some of the stories they would tell you about, about life in Ukraine? Life in Ukraine. It seemed like it was a great place to be. Um, they were both from the city. They weren't from the villages, really. Um, they left at a young age. I mean, I don't mean as children, but as students. My mom was um, in pre-med when the war broke out, and my dad was studying engineering. And uh, <clears throat> the, the stories about just the walks in the park, uh, it just seemed like such a relaxed, good life. It's amazing to... to you know, knowing you outside of this and knowing your knowledge of Ukraine and then kind of having the knowledge from, like, passed down from your parents versus what you've researched. I mean, are you finding a lot of, I don't know, other things that they would talk about that you look in and you're like, oh, I can't believe this. You know, like, that's, that's you know, that's exactly how mom and dad used to say it. Uh, oh, as far as, um, especially language, um, Western Ukraine is a little bit different from Eastern Ukraine, but Lviv itself actually has almost its own little dialect, especially one that was 
very popular right before World War II. And um, I knew some people in this area who, it's not necessarily a diet, but there's certain expressions. It's almost slang expressions. Uh, I knew other people who used them, but not everybody did. And now um, I've discovered that um, in, through research that in Ukraine, there's been sort of a resurgent, in view itself, there's been a resurgent of this slang or dialect, uh, you might call it. Is it called something in particular? No. Uh, it, well, it, recently it's uh, gotten a name, Lvyushka Gvara, but that's just been a recent name, I think. Um, does, that, does that mean anything? Lviv, the only way I would translate it is into dialect or way of speaking. Um, <laughs> it would it, it'd be similar to how we would say like oh it's a southern accent or a, exactly you know a, a Beverly Hills accent or, or something along those lines. And there's also certain just expressions that come and go. Even in English, we see them come and go, and it's the same kind of thing. This is the pre-war language. So the the when you hear people at Manor talk Ukrainian, is it generally that dialect, or does everyone kind of have their own little? Generally, it's the Western Ukrainian dialect. Um, anybody that I've spoken to here, occasionally some of the students that come in have more of an Eastern Ukrainian dialect. Right, because I was going to say, because, you know, just hearing in the hallways, and it's not, you know, manners Ukrainian, but I wouldn't say our student population is 100% Ukrainian. But knowing that, like, you know, Anne Kachula or, or Nick Rodinsky or... Um, you know, a handful of students, like, you'll hear you guys in the hallway speaking Ukrainian every now and then. And it's, is it the same general? Oh, yes. Absolutely. And you grew up with Ukrainian in the home, I imagine. Right? I did not speak English until I went to school. And how old was that? Five. Oh, no, I'm sorry, six. <laughs> <laughs> so what was, what was the toughest part about learning English? I don't remember learning English. You just remember speaking both languages as, your, as the earliest age? Yeah. I went to school. Um, there were a few other friends that uh, I made in first grade. I went straight to first grade, made friends with people who were just like me, who did not speak English. And all I know is, all of a sudden, we were all speaking English. I think at that <laughs> age, it just comes very easily. Were you, uh, did you grow up in Philadelphia? Yes. You said you were born in Jersey, but you were... Yeah, we moved to Philadelphia when I was five because my mother wanted me to go to the school run by the sisters. What school? What school? St. Basil's on Lindley Avenue. Is that the St. Basil's that would end up being across the street? Well, that was point? the high school, but the elementary school was on, on, in, I guess that's still Logan in, on Lindley Avenue. And then, so you went there. Did you go to Basil's too, or no? No, I went there till seventh grade, and then we switched over to public school. Why was, why was... Um, why was your mom so adamant about keeping you in like, because, Ukrainian schools? Because she wanted me to, uh, if nothing else, she wanted me to have the religion in Ukrainian. She wanted me to learn the prayers in Ukrainian and also have the Byzantine rite as opposed to the Latin rite. What does it mean for you now that you're, you know, you've been doing this job for 29 years and teaching Ukrainian culture and kind of, yeah, you know, it seems like it'd be a cool thing, like growing up and, and being surrounded by the culture, and then now you get to kind of pass it along. In some ways, I feel like 
even though, and I am the oldest in my family uh, right now, and um, I feel like we have to pass it on or else it will get lost. Um, it's nice to be able to teach younger people about some of our customs, some of our folk arts. I see that maybe not as many are sticking to the customs the way we did as children, and that's normal. That's a normal process. But it's nice to see, and the new waves of immigrants coming in and um, being able to sort of revive it a little bit. A lot of the folk arts have gotten a real boost in the last few years. Is there anything in particular when you say like in the folk arts that like have been boosted? Embroidery is big. Embroidery really has taken off in Ukraine into the designers have incorporated into their designs. Um, there's also the beadwork that is used for the adornment too. Um, and then the eggs, the pisenke. Can you explain what, what pisenke are? Okay, pisenke are now often called Ukrainian Easter eggs, but pisenke were done in Ukraine, in the area that is now Ukraine, centuries before Christianity was ever introduced to Ukraine. They were made to welcome the sun god back from the cold winter. Um, the word pisanka comes from the Ukrainian word pisate, which means to write, because you're writing with hot wax on an egg. Uh, the tool that's used is called a kistka. It's basically a copper funnel on a stick. You put beeswax into the funnel, you heat it over a candle, and you start writing on the white egg. Whatever you cover will stay white. You put it into yellow dye, cover parts you want yellow. Go ahead into the orange dye and on and on to the darkest dye, and then you melt all the wax off. They create some really cool stuff, because I've seen it too. <laughs> it's my, my favorite thing about the pisanki, and I'm, I'm still struggling to pronounce that word, even though I'm part Ukrainian. Oh, you're doing very well. <laughs> the, the thing I always appreciate is, is it's not, you know, American Easter eggs, as I'll call them that way, are, you know, hard-boiled then dyed. These are actual, for the most part, you can, they're supposed to be done with real live eggs, not hard-boiled, not anything. Right. So how does that part of the process work? Well, traditionally, they're done on a raw egg. And eventually, the egg yolk and the egg white dry out in time. The eggshell is porous, and with the air getting in, it dries out. It actually gives it a protective coating on the inside. Right now, it's a little hard to use those types of <laughs> eggs because of our eggs just don't have the shells uh, that are as thick as they used to be. Our shells are getting thinner and thinner. So most artists that do piss and can now do empty the eggshell. What I'm um, talking about piss and key and, and the, you know, the vast array of, of you know, we're, we're taping this in the Ukrainian Heritage Study Center now in the museum, and there's a large, I don't know how many, Dozens of pisanki do we yeah, have? Yeah, a few hundred probably. Yeah, and, and they're on display, but there's so many cool little artifacts. Um, what, is your, what is your favorite? My favorite artifact is a wall hanging that was embroidered in the displaced persons camps in Germany right after World War II. And the, one of the reasons it's my favorite is because my parents went through those camps. This was, and I heard the stories of how they did plays. They did all sorts of things to preserve their culture. Well, this wall hanging is an example of that because it's embroidered uh, with a design that the woman remembered from home 
but it's embroidered on United States Army issue blanket, which just makes it so special. Is there an artifact that uh, other people kind of are drawn to here? I wouldn't say an, one particular artifact, but our what we call our village room is has drawn quite a few people and had expressions of, this is the way I remember home. It is a room which we try to recreate what a village home would look like, especially, oh, end of the 1800s, early 1900s. It, basically a one-room house with a big stove, uh, tables and chairs that were carved, and icons on the walls, and all the tools that would have been used. So part of your job is, is that outreach of um, getting out of the community, showing people, um, you know, Ukraine and its culture. Why, why do you think the culture matters so much? Well, when my parents came, they said that we had to preserve our language and culture because it was being destroyed by the Soviet Union or by the communist government in Ukraine. And there definitely was a, an attempt to destroy it. After Ukraine gained independence, it actually in the past few years it started looking like, oh, okay, our job is done. It's being preserved there. They're doing a great job over there. And since the war broke out, we're seeing cultural artifacts being destroyed, churches burned, um, archives being destroyed. So we're right back to it's our job to preserve whatever we can. What is it about um, Manor College that, that has kept you here for, for 29 years? The feeling of community. That is the most important part. And, and what about that community? What, what makes you feel so, so welcome? Um, I think everybody here is very welcoming and they're very supportive. Uh, through bad times, through good times, you know, they share your joys and they help you when you're going. In 29 years, you've got to go through some bad times and some good times. And uh, I've experienced both and the support has been great. What, um, what do you feel like is the future of, of the center? Where do, you, where do you see, you know, the museum and... and and the, the culture that comes from here progressing? Well, um, definitely student involvement and showing our students our culture, outreach into the both Ukrainian community and non-Ukrainian, but also with the war going on in Ukraine right now and many refugees that will come to the United States and probably this area since there are Ukrainians here already, I see this as a place where they could meet and also feel like a little bit like they're at home. Tell me about the Ukrainian community here, because I think, you know, to say that even just this strip along Fox Chase Road with Sisters of St. Basil the Great next door, St. Michael's down the block. Right. Sorry, I'm making sure I get my churches right. but. Um, and the Ukrainian Cultural Center around the yeah. corner. And then, you know, we run stuff through through here, so the Ukrainian Nest. Um, tell yes. me a bit more about the Ukrainian community and, and how you fit into it here. Uh, the Ukrainian community in this area is sort of the hub for the whole Philadelphia area. The Ukrainian Center is very important. The Ukrainian Cultural Center is very important to that. And... Um, here at Manor, we cooperate with the Ukrainian Cultural Center. We've done exhibits there. Uh, we work with some of the organizations that are um, housed there. 
And um, there are, Ukrainians came to the United States in waves. And um, the nice thing is that we can all, no matter which wave our ancestors or we came from, uh, we can all speak the same language, even though there might be slight differences, and we can all cooperate. Now, um, the Ukrainian Nest that you mentioned was a program that we started here for children and families that um, wanted to stay within the Ukrainian community and wanted their children to learn some Ukrainian, but at the same time were not interested in a very intense uh, program in addition to whatever they were doing during the week because you had school sports, music, all sorts of things. So we started the program originally. We met here in person um, on Saturday mornings, and our goal was to make it fun, uh, not make children hate another day of school, <laughs> as we did when yeah. we went. <laughs> um, with COVID hitting, we had to stop, and we just sent materials home with the hope that some of the children would be able to do some of them. But in this past year, we asked some of the parents, and uh, we weren't really ready to go back in person with children with COVID. So we started with uh, virtual, and we did this uh, one hour on Tuesday nights, 6.30 to 7.30, and uh, found that we think the children enjoyed it more, and we enjoyed it more, because being only an hour, it was easier to keep attention spans. And we didn't have to worry about some of the physical limitations. This is a college. This isn't a classroom made for five and six years old. Um, even the idea of them going to the restroom, uh, you know, is not made for a little five-year-old. Right, right. And there's other people in the building, so we had to always be on the lookout because with children, you have to be very careful. If we're doing it virtually, we don't have those problems. But the other thing we found is that by doing it virtually, we're starting to get people that are not from this area. We, in this last semester, we had a family from North Carolina, one from Tennessee, and one from Missouri. Wow. So we're hoping to attract more. It's cool because I think that's the, you know, when people will look back at COVID as a, um, you know, as a time frame, I, I think a lot of that virtual um, component is, is, is vital now. You yes. know, I, I think about like, you know, out of that COVID came Artifact of the Month. Which right. you know, we've been putting on now for well, when did you guys start beforehand? Because uh, me and you have been year. doing it since December. Right. I think about a year. Well, we started September, previous September. So Artifact of the Month, to explain it to people who are not yeah. as familiar, is we, we take an artifact throughout the museum and um, talk about the background of it, the culture of it. Um, you know, like I think my favorite one is the Christmas spiders. I, they will always be my favorite one. Um, do you want to tell the Christmas spiders on a, a little bit of background? Okay. Um, the Christmas spider is um, something that you find on Ukrainian Christmas trees. Yeah. Usually it's, uh, well, originally I think they were made with walnuts for the body of the spider and then somehow beads were attached. Uh, today a lot of them are just made with beads. But the, there's, there's a few legends about spiders and Christmas, but the one that I like the most and that we told in the Artifact of the Month is that there was a poor woman who couldn't 
do anything for Christmas for her children. And uh, she just had scraps of fabric. She was going to try to sew some things for the tree. She went to cut down the tree, but not realizing there was a family of spiders living in the tree. And the mommy spider was very worried about her babies because they were going to freeze to death that night. So the human mother <laughs> brought the tree into the house and started working on these ornaments, but she was so tired from all the work she was doing that she fell asleep. In the meantime, the spider woke up to be in a warm house and realized that it was a welcoming house and she wanted to pay back for the comfort of being in a warm house. And so they spun webs all over the tree and in the morning when the children woke up and the sun hit the webs, they glistened like gold. So it was the Christmas spider's miracle. So tell me a little bit about the the center has really had this emphasis on, on outreach. And tell me a little bit about how that came about and, and why that's so important. Well, the outreach program uh, came about with the idea that some schools and some children could not make it to the museum for any type of a lesson because of different um, paperwork problems, things like that, crossing city uh, borders. And it started out as a little bit of an experiment of going out to different schools and doing workshops or just uh, seminars. It grew quickly. Uh, many teachers were very interested in especially the piss and kid workshops. Uh, most of it was strictly by word of mouth. Either there was a Ukrainian parent who had a child and talked to the teacher or once that teacher had the workshop, they spread the word to other teachers. There were certain triggers. The, there, is a, there are two books uh, written by Patricia Polacco that mention Piss and Kim. One was usually read in first grade, one's in third. <laughs> and when they read it in third grade, teachers would call me to please do a workshop about the Piss and Kim. Eventually, it developed into a, a little more of a general community where um, now it's any community group. It can be scouting, it can be libraries. Uh, we've worked with libraries doing both exhibits and workshops at the libraries. Um, many senior citizens groups. We've had questers groups coming to visit here uh, at the museum and doing workshops. So it has expanded and Dr. Perry has been very supportive of the outreach program and just generally about um, spreading the word about our Ukrainian heritage and being involved in both uh, different organizations in the Ukrainian community, but especially about um, raising awareness about the Holodomor, which was the famine created by Joseph Stalin in 1932-33 that very few people knew about until very recently. And Dr. Perry has been instrumental in just, just raising awareness through the educational system. Um, and he's been very cooperative with anything having to do with Ukrainian heritage, um, which I find amazing because he's not Ukrainian, he's Italian. <laughs> Sometimes it takes an outsider to, to kind of see what, what a culture has to offer that's not their own. And sometimes we just get so used to it, we don't realize the value of it. Right, right. I got to ask, because we were talking before about food and all. Um, 
Who, I assume your mother was the, the cook growing up? Uh, my grandmother than my mother, yes. <laughs> Who, do you have a favorite dish that they used to make? Uh, like, was there something Ukra specifically Ukrainian that they made that... Well, um, a lot of the food that they made was Ukrainian, although they did experiment. Um, and there, was, there were many dishes that, um, as a child, maybe I didn't appreciate as much as I do now. Um, like what? Well, one of them was what they called flaki or flachke, which um, is tripe, which I totally did not appreciate as a child, <laughs> so <laughs> but enjoy now. And tripe is is that the pig's stomach lining? With and that's how do you how do it, you do that right? It's almost like a you make it almost like a stew. Okay. Um, but I mean that's just one. But the, the basics. I mean we had pirohe or varanike. Um, Every Friday. And, and, and what's that? Uh, that would be equivalent to pierogies. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, I mean, every Friday there was no meat, and that's what we had for uh, supper every Friday. <laughs> There's also the um, nalisnike, which is basically a crepe that could be filled with anything. I really enjoy those. And many of the soups. Uh, you know, soup was something you made with whatever you had. Was was beet soup a Ukrainian thing too? Yes, borscht is definitely okay. a. I don't want to say it's only a Ukrainian soup because it's not. No, no, but I was going to say I have in Polish traditions. We think that it originated in Ukraine. I there are people in Ukraine right now that are studying where it actually originated, so that uh, we know whether we can totally claim it as we started it. <laughs> What's, what's something that's like pretty Ukrainian that you see in culture now that you might not have seen a while ago? You mean... In well, I think like, you know, I don't know. I, I, I don't know the origins of kibasi or, or anything, but I see kibasi around a lot more than I, yes. I think I would have imagined when I was young growing up and bringing it to school and, and people are like, what is that? I'm like, oh, it's kind of like a sausage or something, well, but... I think in general, um, there has been, I, especially when it comes to food, uh, more of a exploration of other cultures in the United States. Um, and like you said, when I brought some of the Ukrainian foods for lunch, it was like, ooh, what's Christina eating today? <laughs> <laughs> but now it's much more uh, open and children are willing to try different foods more than they used to be and so are adults um, what do I see more yeah you're right we call it kubasa Polish call it kubasi uh, we do see a lot more of it. it I mean Hillshire Farms makes a version of it yeah I can't imagine when I was young and I'm you know going to the supermarket and seeing it now where I used to have to go to like a specific deli to find it I'm absolutely sure it was the same thing here yeah and there are a lot more ethnic delis around, too, that you can go to and get things that, um, I mean, just came from Ukraine or from Poland or any of the Eastern European countries. I think there's also been um, more immigration, maybe, from the Eastern European countries, and that's why we're seeing more of those foods. From, from a culture standpoint, is there something that, uh, or, you know, I guess more of a curator standpoint, do you, like, I generally gravitate towards the food of a culture. Like, if I were to go somewhere, even if it's just a different city, it's like, okay, like, you know, if I'm in Philadelphia, cheesesteaks, okay, like, New York pizza, you know, like, Texas is barbecue. Like, what for you is your, 
focus like when when you look at a culture you look at like ukrainian culture is there something for you like an aspect of it that really like i love this part of ukrainian culture it would have to be jewelry and embroidery almost every culture does some form of embroidery or decorative sewing so for me it's both of those probably because I've done both of those and uh, it keeps my interest uh, to see the different designs, how they work together and how similar they can be from culture to culture and yet have their own differences. Is there something that separates Ukrainian jewelry or embroidery? Uh, Ukrainian jewelry is um, kind of separated by almost areas of Ukraine. What I and most interested in is the beadwork that's done with the tiny beads, which we call girdane. Um, what separates that from other cultures? It's usually just the particular designs because the stitches, the stitch we used with the beadwork is known in other cultures, but not used as extensively as it is in Ukrainian. But I have seen many Native American um, outfits in beadwork that are very, very similar. Who taught you how to do a lot of that stuff? Embroidery, my, my mom did. Um, my mom really enjoyed embroidering, but she enjoyed uh, not designing because she took traditional designs, but then how she laid them out on the piece of fabric that she was using. And we always laughed that we had almost like a factory going in our house because my grandmother enjoyed the actual embroidery and she didn't like the layout. <laughs> so <laughs> my mother would lay it out and my grandmother would do the work of embroidering. So you're making like whole pieces of clothing? Uh, mostly what we did was the table... Um, I don't want to call them scarves, but just like little uh, like a, pieces. It's, it's on not a tablecloth, table but it's like yeah, a, like a runner. Yeah, there you go. The runners, maybe what I was even thinking. a placemat, and also pillows. Pillows were big. <laughs> <laughs> what what is uh so so walk me through what a scene is like when you're doing you know that kind of embroidery. So your mom's doing the layout, your grandmother's doing yeah. the. Now I was doing a little bit of both uh, because I was trying to learn both. It all depended on the stitch because the cross stitch is very common as the first stitch that everybody learns but it wasn't common in ukraine until much later and some of the other stitches are much more interesting i happen to really love doing the nizinka or niz stitch which is almost like a weave it's from the hutsul area of ukraine and my mom was able to teach me that one i was very happy with that and in a way that stitch is very similar to some of the beadwork, the way you do the beadwork, um, by doing one line up and one line down. And that's probably what attracted me to the beadwork. Plus, um, both the embroidery and the beadwork, I mean, beadwork, you just self-explanatory. You're putting on beads and on a needle and connecting them in some way. But with a lot of embroidery that you see from other cultures, there is a drawing on the fabric and you follow the drawing. In Ukrainian embroidery, there generally isn't. You're counting threads and moving up and down to where you need to be. And to me, that's all math. So it's which, back which, to my backdrop. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you should have had that on your application then to start. That actually fits in. <laughs> Christina, thank you so much for, for talking today and, and for 
uh, everything about the center. Um, if people want to get in touch with you uh, for more information about the center, how do they do that? Uh, the best thing would be my email address, uhsc at manor.edu. Awesome. Christine, thank you so much. Thank you very much. <laughs>